In this episode, I am once again joined by Dean Slater, meditation teacher and best-selling author of several books, including The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature. In this episode, Dean challenges unexamined assumptions about meditation, reveals how to teach meditation well, how to communicate technique and spiritual ideas in plain language, when and how to effectively use Sanskrit or Tibetan terms, and considers whether or not meditation teachers need to know where the paths they teach lead. Dean also shares his passion for language and literature, lists his favorite authors, recalls his time teaching English at the illustrious Pingri School, and gives his top tips for how to write well. So without further ado, Dean Slater. You know, when they when when they published the Harry Potter books in, in America, they changed all the Britishisms to American. Did they? Yes. So like, you know, a lorry became a truck and so forth. And I thought that, that was such a shame. That is a shame, I think. I, yeah. I can't imagine that. Have you have you tried reading both versions? I have not tried reading either version. No, neither have I. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. must say I missed it. Yeah. Though I do remember my birthday's on 21st of June, which is the summer solstice. And uh, wait, wait, that's my birthday. Really? Yeah. Whoa. Get out. Get out. Are, are you on the on the Gemini side or the Cancer side? Gemini side. Yes. That's actually very unusual. You must have been born quite early in the morning. Uh, 3.51 a.m. Yeah. And, and you're what year? 86. Fire Tiger. 86. <laughs> Trying to wrap my head around that because you're younger than my children. That's, that doesn't make sense <laughs> to me. Um, <laughs> uh, well, that's, that's yes, a- we were born as, I mean, my standard line on that when people ask when I was born, I say is the longest, sunniest, most wonderful day of the year. After that, it's straight downhill. Yeah, that is cosmologically true. I think that is, yeah, that's a scientific fact. You can't deny that. Well, that's, that's great. That's I, maybe I could, can I lift that line as well? Sure. <laughs> okay, great. I can't believe that. That's so wild. Well, anyway, yeah. the, the Harry Potter, um, uh, 21st, yeah, 21st of June, of course, is kind of a big deal in. Uh, I suppose occult uh, sort of. Um, oh, you know, oh, that's the druids show up at at Stonehenge. Right. Uh, we, they, we, they, I was there. The one time I visited Stonehenge was on my birthday, and and the. Well, oh, wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait. No, no, it's the one with the where the where the the town is like right in the middle of the henge. Mm. I didn't realize that where there's wood henges and. Oh yeah. I remember sitting down at the pub with my my pub grub and and on my plate assembling a, a potato henge. <laughs> Well, that they would often release in the UK the latest Harry Potter book when it was uh-huh. coming out on midnight on the, you know, I guess, I think it was, I don't remember now if it was midnight 20th to the 21st or midnight right. 21st to the 22nd, but it was right. always around my my birthday and uh, it was, right. caused quite a furor. And in fact, where I lived, the um, certain church groups would hold all night prayer vigils against the right. uh, demonic influence of right. the other Harry Potter books. I don't know if the demonic influence is lessened if you take out the Britishisms. Probably it is. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, because it disrupts the this this syllabic power of the spells. Yeah, yeah. 
That's great. Good. You know, Good. I think we should include that little bit there that we just yeah yeah so, because yeah, I yeah. think that's or very organic and uh, it's, ha it's happy uh, happy coincidence. It's it's it's, it's gold. Yeah, you got to some somehow I ask me about my birthday and be surprised. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so this is our third uh, conversation, and in the first interview, we covered your life, very fascinating life you've had. I can highly recommend it. That's actually been met with a great deal of interest. And then we did a second episode, which we talked actually in quite some detail about some of your spiritual teachers. We also talked about enlightenment and meditation and the way of effortlessness versus effort. We talked about the mechanics of spiritual realization, spiritual epiphanies, spiritual experiences, and the pitfalls that surround that. Um, we discussed a lot of that. It was very interesting indeed. And we began to edge into talking about literature. We discussed in some detail the Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature, which you've, uh, you, you've recently released. We also talked about um, Cinema Nirvana, your, your book about finding uh, Dharma themes in, in movies, and not movies like The Matrix, which everyone already knows. You made the point that you don't um, go for the low-hanging fruit. But in all movies like Casablanca and you know, classic movies like that, you, you found these themes in there. And we talked also about your hermeneutical approach, how, how it is you're able to, to find these themes in works by authors or filmmakers who perhaps were, were not themselves consciously intending to put those themes in. We, we talked about that. Today, I would actually like to talk about literature and about your love of literature. I'd also like to ask you a bit about teaching, which has been a large part of your life at the Pingree School, the illustrious Pingree School. And not only, of course, and uh, some other themes also. Let's see if we get past that. So those are some of the themes that I'd like to bring up. So you said actually several times in our previous conversations that you're a literature guy. That, that, and so I'm curious when that began, uh, what does that mean to you when you say I'm a literature guy? What does that mean to you? And when did, when did your love of literature begin? Yeah, I'm a literature guy. Um, I'm also a movie guy. I'm also a music guy. Um, uh, but my, I, I, I really started reading addictively uh, from a from a very early age, um, and and I would pretty much read what was in in front of me. You know, it could be Tom Sawyer, or it could be a Donald Duck comic, or it could be I don't know a tomato soup can. And, um, and in retrospect, I realized that, that that had a meditative dimension, because I would get so completely lost in the in the dimension of reading. Um, and, and my mom would call me from another part of the house to, to do something, Dean, come down and bop, up up. I would say, Okay, mom, just a minute, sincerely intending to come down in a minute, and then go back to the book, lost again time would disappear. I noticed this happened to me at least a few times. I had a headache. And I would start reading, and the experience of the headache would go away. And then something would happen, my mom would call me, something would pull me out of the book, and I'd realize, oh, the headache is still there. Right, so that it was, it wasn't curing it, but it was pulling me down to the level that that transcended that that physical experience so so that was in a way was kind of a precursor to formal 
meditation practice. Um, so yeah, I, I just always I loved uh, uh, books and 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 words and and from early on I you know I loved rhymes and slogans and paradoxes and and palindromes um and um i i think the first the first author that really made me just fall in love with the music of books was dr seuss um and and his his infectious use of um anapestic meter you know, bada bum, bada bum, bada bum, which is uh, not everyone realizes that. That's kind of uh, one of the keys to the the the, the charm of of his books, bada bum. Uh, it's I call it reverse waltz time. You know, um, uh, anapestic meter would be waltz time. One two three, one two three. This gracefully gliding across the the ballroom floor, but bada bum, bada bum is is kind of like galloping camels or something. It, there, there's this odd kind of goofy foot. Uh, what he, in surf culture they call when people who who surf with their right foot in front of so that their left goofy foot kind of uh, eccentricity. You're kind of falling into the beat all the time. So yeah, that's how I got got started. And the and the wonderful. Um, uh, a, a dimension of imagination in the Dr. Seuss books. You know, the best of them usually start with some um, mundane situation. You know, the little Marco walking home from school. This was his first children's book. Uh, and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street. And to think that I... Da, 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 street. Um, Little Marco, little boy, his father tells him, "You observe when you're walking home. See what 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 there is, and when you come home, report to me what you saw." And all he sees is an old man, you know, with a horse on a on a cart. And he thinks, "Well, that's not enough." And he starts developing it. And soon, it's the it's fantastic circus parade with elephants and trapeze artists. You know. So, uh, yeah, that was the beginning. That's very interesting indeed. Were you interested in etymology? Did you get into that? I'm wondering if you oh, yes. did it Latin or Greek and so on in, in your early education. Did, were you exposed to that sort of thing? Did that play a part at all? Yeah, I never studied Latin or, or Greek, but yeah, I've always been fascinated by, by etymology. And, um, um, uh, you know, the, the, that the way that words are, um, they're sort of fossils. They're like like the fossil record of of the thoughts that people have about things and the the feelings that people have about things that that get invested in the sounds of the words and and the way that the sounds are combined, um, uh, and and people's names. I used to uh, uh, when I was teaching English, you usually with my particularly with my tenth graders. Uh, sometime in the first week of class, I would ask them about their first names and last names and what's the derivation and what do they mean? And usually they didn't know. Usually they had never thought about it. And, you know, to find out, oh, that my, for instance, a kid whose name was Teddy, to find out, oh, Theodore, well, that means gift of God. Theodore, and, and the female version is Dorothy. Um, and then to find out that your your last name, 
uh, usually uh, it has to do with a, a physical characteristic that someone had or an occupation that someone had or uh, or or um, where they lived or they were a patronymic like Johnson or Williamson. Um, and they say, oh, so that's just son of John. Yeah, but what's John? Oh, John is this deep uh, word name with deep Old Testament roots that means God is satisfied. That's deep. So you're walking around with all this stuff in your name. Let me pay attention to it. Unpack it. It's fun. What, what about Dean Slater? Yes. Well, Dean, uh, of course, a Dean is in a in a school. Um, by by the way, uh, my background, uh, which is uh, Ashkenazi Jewish, although no one in my family was observant, um, which made actually made made my spiritual life easier because I went in without any baggage um uh but in 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 Ashkenazi Jewish tradition you you usually get a name with the first letter of a recently deceased relative um so I was named for my grandmother Devora and my mom was waiting for a girl I was supposed to be uh, Deborah or Diane or something, uh, but I, I clearly was not a girl, so I got to be Dean. Yes, Dean, uh, of course, a Dean in a school, Dean in a university is like a, a senior uh, teacher, uh, which seems to fit me pretty well. Um, the derivation of it, interestingly, it, me, in, in, it, it goes back to meaning 10, and that's because in the Middle Ages, the, the schools and the, um, uh, uh, the, uh, the monasteries were organized in groups of 10. So a dean was someone who was above 10 people down on the next level. This is why you have, you know, you have the, the Roman coin, the denarius, uh, and Spanish money's dinero. Right? In English, we have the dime. So... Mm -hmm. So as as we, I don't know if you say that in England, but here we say, "Hey, I'm money." <laughs> so and and slider is is Dutch. Um, I've been to Holland a few times, and I can't pronounce it the way the Dutch do. It's it's something like sluiter, uh, and it means closer, closer, like someone who slides something closed. So um, so some ancestor of mine was apparently a. Um, uh, could have been a guard at the gates of the city, could have been a, a doorman in someone's house, uh, could have been a, a, a warden or a, or a jailkeeper. Wow, very cool. Interesting. Yeah. Did you notice an effect on the children when you would, well, 10th grade is what, 14, 15, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Did you notice an effect on them when you would um, uh, investigate the meaning of their names? Oh, yeah. They, I mean, just in general, um, that was of a piece with everything I tried to do in the classroom, which was um, uh, just one way or another to make the point that knowing stuff is fun. <laughs> you know, not you've got to know this for the test or you've got to know this for a useful life skill. Yeah, there's that. It's it's useful to know how to use a semicolon so you don't look stupid on paper. Uh, but knowing stuff is exciting. Knowing stuff is a lot more fun than, you know, knowledge is much more fun than ignorance.
So that was kind of, uh, you know, one of the, the introductions to that basic theme. And, and this is why I would make it a point in, in teaching literature to get into the personalities of the authors and the people in the background, you know, when we would talk about, again, language, um, the fact that, that English has this vocabulary, which is far richer than most languages in the world. And that's because in 1066, we had this, this collision, we had, we had, uh, you know, that's when, when, when the frogs swam over the channel and, uh, and, and co conquered the, the Anglo-Saxons. Um, and so we had the peasants speaking Anglo-Saxon and we had the nobles. Now the, you know, the court language was, was old French. Uh, so all of a sudden we doubled our vocabulary. So the, so the people who were raising down in the pastures, raising the cows called it a cow and the people who were up, on the top of the hill eating it called it beef um or we had you know the chicken and the the, the poultry and the um and then all of our words for um government military court system are all french right we have you know in court you have the the, the plaintiff the the defendant the jure um in uh, and, and and so forth um, so, so that gives us two ways to say everything, uh, the, uh, the plain and fancy, and then to, I would use this a lot in teaching writing, um, because starting from 1066 on, if you wanted to not sound like a peasant, if you wanted to sound literally classy, upper class, you use the French derived words. And that meant you use the long fancy words, which is so interesting that kids in high school will intuitively know to do that. They'll try to use the longest word they can for everything. And then I would have to show them actually <laughs> to write clean street. You know, we're living in the, actually we're living in the post Hemingway world. And that what Hemingway did was turn the clock back to 1065 and show that if you say rock, <laughs> If you use a plain, simple Anglo-Saxon word, rock, the fact that that is a, a language of the earth, it's a peasant language, it feels more like a rock. It's more immediate. You don't have this clutter of, of cerebral polysyllabic verbiage between the author and the object, and then between the object and the reader. Um, and so... Um, I would take my, the kids would come in with their half-written papers to see me for during office hours. And um, I would tell, ask them, okay, read it, read out loud. And by the way, that's the, the key to writing is, is you have to read out loud everything you, you write. Um, and they would start reading and they would have something like, um, uh, a distinct majority of the population of the United States derives enjoyment from participation in uh, cinematic forms of entertainment. I would say, wait, wait, put that down. And that's important. I said, turn the paper over. I said, uh, what are you trying to say here? And they say, well, most Americans enjoy movies. I go, say that. And they say, what? You can really do that? I said, yeah. 
So just becoming aware of language, aware of the components of it and the dimensions of it and and um, uh, the the sound of it, the, the music of it was, um, I mean, to me, that's always been delightful. And to be able to to share that with with some some young people was just, you know, incredibly fun. And, and, you know, I used to tell my students the, the, the secret to a happy life is, is not necessarily uh, eliminating your neuroses. It's, it's figuring out how to monetize them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> figure out how, whatever's your ex, let's say your eccentricity, your traits, your traits are pretty much hardwired, figure out how to make a living at them instead of trying to change them. Uh, so, you know, that like, I, I used to pinch myself. Am I getting paid to do this? This is great. Yeah, I'd like to actually dive into that in a moment. Uh, your work at the Pingree School and the, these sorts of themes, what, what you were really doing there. I mean, of course, you were teaching English, but you've already given us a glimpse of some of your methodology and your emphasis. And I think that's very interesting. You know, at the Pingree School, teaching English, you taught many of the books that you write about in the Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature. And there are a lot of classics in there. Um, mm -hmm. How did you get into the classics? Is that something that you you read naturally, or did you read that as part of your education? What's your relationship to the sort of books that you write about in the Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature? Well, um, I mean, many of them I had read already in 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 uh, high school or or college, or some I had read on my own. Um, uh, not very many of them, because, you know, by the time I got to college, you know, I, I completed my first year in college. That was at San Francisco State College. Uh, and I was there from 1966 to June of 1967. Now, June of 1967, for y'all cultural historians, this was the summer of love in San Francisco. That was, you know, ground zero of the the psychedelic revolution. So that was it for college for me for for several years. Uh, you know, after that, that's when I started on my kind of psychedelic sadhu phase, which I think we talked about in the previous interview. Um, so, so as far as any serious reading, my reading now is all going more toward reading Eastern texts and so forth. Um, and then I after teaching, uh, uh, after my, my hippie phase, and then I met Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and he said, you want to be a meditation teacher, get a haircut, put on a necktie, I'll train you how to do that. Um, so I did that. And then um, uh, it started becoming interesting to me to get a, a day job, which I, you know, having an actual grown up job, for me, was, was where I was coming from was something exotic. So uh, I got a call from a friend to uh, try out to um, interview for this job at the Pingree School. And it was in the middle of the school year. It was in December. And I interviewed for the job. I There were several people much better qualified than I was, but my friend who was just wonderfully Machiavellian went around and undercut all the, you know, uh, all the other <laughs> applicants, and I got the job. Um, and it meant that when I started around the end of January, um, I would, I, I had had no time to prepare. So I was told, okay, tomorrow, you're going to start teaching uh, the Canterbury Tales, you're going to start reading Chaucer. Somehow, I had missed that in my reading. 
Uh, I had never read Chaucer. I had no idea what was Chaucer was all about. So I ran upstairs to the library, pulled down some couple of four or five books of Chaucer criticism, and just uh, and if somehow I found out I was a I was a quick study, and I would get and I would ask the the guy that had gotten me the job there, who was a wonderful guy, Jim Hanlon was my sort of mentor there. I said, okay, what's the deal on Chaucer? And he said, the tale fits the teller. So okay, I can go with that. Um, and then I discovered, okay, how do you keep everyone on board? How do you keep 15 year olds on board? Really anyone. Um, and for instance, with the Canterbury tales, I, I realized, oh, you start with the dirty ones. You know, most people, if they were, were exposed to Chaucer in school, they'll tell you, oh, it's so boring. I can't, that's because their teacher began at the beginning. So I, you would go right to the Reeves tale or the Miller's tale, which are, you know, hilariously filthy. Uh, then you get all the kids on board because they think, oh, old literature, old fashioned is, is by nature stuffy. It's puritanical. Not so. So that's, that's another big revelation for them. So, yeah, that was pretty much. So that first year I found out I could just, you know, stay, stay a page ahead of the students. And sometimes I was, I was teaching stuff that I had, had never read before. In fact, when I was um, interviewing for the job and it looked like it was going to go to a more qualified candidate, they said, well, let's have everyone stay over, come back tomorrow and teach a class. They said, can you teach a class on Henry IV, part one? I said, sure. I'd never read it. And I managed to get hold of it, and, you know, through and got some idea of it and went in the next day, did something that worked, made, you know, made some people laugh a little, shared a couple of insights and, you know, it worked. What were the, if you want, stated learning outcomes? And then what was, oh. what were the other things that mm -hmm. um, you were, I mean, it seems you wanted to infect them with an enjoyment of literature yep. and give them an access to it and, and have, find them a way, a way to relate to it and enjoy knowledge. And that seems to be, I think that's a through line in almost any great teacher of almost any subject. Um, yep. So I'm kind of curious about what what was the English um, curriculum that you had to teach uh, if there was such mm -hmm. a thing, and then what were what were the other things that you considered part part of your mission as a as a teacher? Yeah, um, there was a curriculum that was pretty much all the tenth grade teachers would be teaching pretty much the same books with a with a few exceptions. I was the last one to keep teaching, waiting for Godot. Uh, because the others said, it's driving the kids crazy. I said, that's what it's supposed to do. Um, but, and teaching, waiting for Gado was a wonderful springboard into, you know, when, 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 uh, when Vladimir says to Estragon out of the blue says, uh, one of the thieves was saved. And then, wait, what is he talking about? And then, and then that, you know, I would take a left turn and spend the next five days talking about the New Testament and turned out that that you know, most of these kids, most of whom were nominally Christians, had no idea of anything in the Bible. And they'd find out, oh, it turns out the Bible's fascinating. Wow. So um, yeah, there was there was that. Um, the big uh, outcome that I was always looking for was that kids should learn to write well. Um, and, and I know it, it kind of sounds like my, my classroom was very loosey goosey, which to a certain degree it was, but my teaching of writing was very rigorous. 
Uh, I used to beat the crap out of kids on their their writing. Uh, and I told them, you, you'll thank me later. And it was very gratifying. They'd come back after a year of college and they'd say, oh, these kids are, you know, slipping me 20 bucks to write papers for them. Uh, um, um, and 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 again that that would i i i started to notice that kids and not only kids but adults but i was dealing with kids make the same mistakes over and over again and i got tired of of writing them writing out the same notes on in the margins of the papers no you can't use a comma to join two independent clauses without a conjunction you need a semicolon here so finally, after the first 15 years, I'd be sitting up in bed marking papers and going, God, I've been telling them this for 15 years. something." And my wife said, Dean, settle down, honey. It's not the same kids you had 15 years ago. <laughs> so, so that led me to, I, I, I compiled my, you know, Uncle Dean's top 10 writing errors and solutions. That eventually became 20 and then 30. And then that became... Um, other teachers started borrowing that. And so we formalized that. That became the Pingree Manual of Style. Uh, and in fact, you can get that online. You can, for free, you can, uh, it, it's online as a PDF if you just Google Pingree Manual of Style. Uh, and, I, and, and a lot of adult friends of mine uh, have told me it's the most useful writing guide that, that they've ever found because it takes you from the nuts and bolts things like how to use a, a semicolon to join independent clauses to the the more stylistic stuff like being um you know preferring the the plain to the fancy the active voice to the passive voice and 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 so forth that's interesting i i wonder if you might say a little bit more about that what makes good writing and also that x factor or that elusive element of good writing which is style uh, yeah. an author's an author's style uh, I, you know, mm -hmm. think about Hemingway or, or Dickens, mm -hmm. both mm -hmm. of them, very mm -hmm. different styles, yeah. but yeah. totally captivating and unmistakable uh, thumbprint, if you like, of, the, of their particular style. It's the same with musicians, isn't it? We were discussing saxophone players last time. Right. So what do you think about that? What makes good writing and, and what about style? How, do, how does that come into it? Well, I would say style comes later. I would say first you have to... Um, First, you, you have to stop trying to make writing that sounds like writing. Um, you, you, you have to try to make the plainest, clearest possible expressions that you can. You, ha you have to get it down to the bone. You have to get it down to clean. Um, and... Is a thing I used to say a lot to my students. You have to see it before you can write it. You have to see it before you can write it. So, so you know, they would they would be writing something, writing a description of something or other, and I could see they were just they were spinning words. They were they were they were spinning words. I would say, no, close your eyes. See, I would say something. Take something familiar like like uh, your mother's face, right? Now, if you just write the phrase, my mother's face, you see it very clearly and, and vividly. 
I don't know your mother, so I don't see anything. So for the, the reader, there's a blank canvas. Now, how are you going to create your mother's face on that canvas for me one brush stroke at a time? Well, you have to start by seeing it. Oh, wait, what color are her eyes? Oh, are her are her eyebrows real, you know, the same color as her hair? Are they are they thin? Are they plucked? Are they whatever? Um, so so it's a matter of paying attention. So so you have to start with 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 things like that. Um, and then when you get comfortable, when that starts to become more or less second nature, um, you can start to find your voice or style you can you can start i think for most people that's not going to happen most people you know if they can learn to write a business memo uh you know or a medical report that's that's not ambiguous um that's great uh but for people who are going to you know, do writing as writing uh then you know it comes the adventure of finding style finding your voice you know finding are you are you, are you Coltrane or are you Charlie Parker? And that I I don't know how how that happens. It's 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 a it's 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 an inner exploration and it's seeing what comes out and what it sounds like and and I mean one thing is to listen to music. One thing is to is to um, to get the dimension of the musicality of language, which is it's not separate from the dimension of meaning. It's always um, um, supporting meaning and expressive of meaning. Uh, but it's, um, you know, famously, um, Robert Frost described this in a letter to someone. He said, it's like when you're in a room and there, there's, there's voices on the other side of the wall so that you don't hear the words, but you hear the, the rise and fall, you hear the cadence, right? That that's that's that music of the language that, that that's what you want to capture. That's what what. But you have to start by becoming aware of it, and for that you have to listen and you have to uh, read your own work out loud. And it's very 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 good to read Dickens out loud and read Hemingway out loud and and really hear it and then start to gain the knack of really hearing it as as if it's spoken. Really hearing it as language, even when you're not reading out loud. That's very interesting. You're, you're reminding me of the reason I brought up Dickens as, as an example of style and contrasting him with Hemingway was when I was uh, in school in the Shetland Islands, which is a small set of islands in the far north, um, very far north of Scotland. I would, in English, finish my work and then I would go to sleep on the desk. And that's what I used to do. So mm -hmm. I'd finish it very fast, you know, and then, mm -hmm. and then I'd just uh, go to sleep. And uh, my teacher at that time, Mr. Campbell, was a tall, uh, I would say he was Dickensian. Uh, mm -hmm. it, 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 he was mm -hmm. tall, he was craggy, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like a mountain face, uh, but also very skinny. And he would come up to the desk with a meter stick, which is what we call the yard stick, right? You have a yard stick, yeah. And he would slam it down on my desk and go, Mr. James. And then he would say, wake up. And I would wake up and then he'd say, you can't do that. And if you're going to do anything, just read a book. And so I would, and I'd like to read, so I would read, but I'd often read tra trashy fantasy novels, sword and sorcery, that kind of thing. 
I really liked that uh, at that time. I mean, it's not the only thing I read, but it's what I would read for comfort and enjoyment and imagination and so on. And he um, would say to me, you're always reading rubbish, right? But it was sort of affectionate uh, scolding. It wasn't, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it wasn't, I may, may come across as bullying, but I found it to be, uh, you know, sort of playful in a way. But it was quite fierce. You're reading this rubbish. You should read Dickens. He always used to say Dickens. <laughs> and I, said, and I was like, oh, I don't want to read Dickens. I, I know about Muppet Christmas Carol, that movie. That's about all I knew about Dickens. And I was not mm -hmm. interested in Dickens at all. He eventually kind of bribed me with um, Jack London, that mm. stuff. So I, I started reading Jack London and uh, it was okay. I mean, there were no wizards in it. So, you know, in, in that <laughs> sense, it was, wasn't exactly what I was looking for, but it was kind of interesting, kind of, kind of cool, you know, and I, I started to like Jack London and then he insisted on Dickens. So I started reading some Dickens. And I remember when I actually got round to reading it, myself there was no no introduction to it or anything no, but no classes on it just reading it um when i should have been doing other things i suppose work or whatever um i was struck by the beauty of of the language and the humor of the language and the rhythm of the language and the playfulness right. but right. it wasn't highfalutin for the sake of being highfalutin as you as you say oh, but it right, was right. ornate evocative but i always thought playful and slightly irreverent i always find it to, to be a little bit sort of um you know like that Mm -hmm. I, I straight away kind of, and I, I realized, you know, whatever I was reading wasn't the point. I, I thought, ah, the, the use of language here is, yes. is, uh, I kind of got it and I found it to be very funny actually in, in a way, mm -hmm. although it's not, not at all funny most of the time, but I, I, the rhythm of it, I find to be, uh, enjoyable. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, so I often think of Dickens when I think of use of language, just mainly only because of my, re my own reference point there. So I'm curious in terms of authors and style and use of language and so on. Who do you enjoy, regardless of other other things like plot and so on? Who do mm -hmm. you who do you enjoy in terms of just writing, sheer writing? Oh, gee. Um, well, once you've read, it's especially if you have a you know a a a, 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 a kind of a three ring circus mind, uh, as I tend to. Once you've read Joyce. It's sort of, sort of hard, hard to go back <laughs> to to anything less rich. Um, Nabokov, same thing. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, I can read Lolita seven days a week. Pale Fire, do you know Pale Fire by Nabokov? Oh my God. Okay, so Pale Fire begins with a poem of. 999 lines the first couple of lines are um and i don't know if they have this expression in in, in britain but a wax wing is a type of bird a cedar wax wing <clears throat> and the image is is a is a bird this happens here sometimes when a bird uh, flies into a window and and dies i was the shadow of the wax wing slain by the false azure in the window pane, right? And it goes on from there. That's the poem. And then the rest of the book is the commentary by the next door neighbor of the poet, the poet now deceased uh, because he was assassinated before writing the thousandth and final line. <laughs> right by assassins 
who were who had the wrong house, who were really looking <laughs> for the guy, the, the guy who is now giving us the commentary on the poem. And the entire novel proceeds as a set of footnotes to the poem. And as we and we pretty we pretty quickly realized that the commentator is probably completely psychotic. Um, and, and that the whole poem is really about him and the fact that he is not really Charles Kinboat, but he is King Charles the Beloved who has been displaced from his, his, his throne in whatever, you know, the kingdom of Zenobia or something, and that the assassins were, had, had come for him. Um, so yes, uh, Nabokov has this same kind of incredibly, uh, rich use of language where, you know, Joyce, for instance, um, uh, 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 Joyce has, you know, when, when Joyce, Joyce's day job, uh, was as a, a teacher for the Berlitz school. So he, he spoke about five or six languages well. Um, and he knew everything about everything. So he has passages, he has phrases that will be like a pun mm. that works in three languages at once and integrates mythology and geography and um, comic strips or music hall lyrics um it, it's just it's i mean it's a very rich meal you can't eat meals that rich all the time um but there is something rather ultimate about it but then to to cleanse your palate then you know you you would go to some hemingway or emily dickinson who's i know is a favorite of yours for her yes. directness yes yes em, emily dickinson who who really was was just the pioneer of the plain style um um but unlike hemingway used the plain style to evoke um the most you know transcendent experiences i find it remarkable and i and i write about it in the book in my chapter on on hemingway that um in, in A Farewell to Arms, which pretty well reflects his own experiences in, in the Great War, uh, his, his hero is, is badly wounded and dies, has a near-death experience. And, and, you know, and he describes it so vividly, you know, only someone who had had that experience could, could describe it that way. And he talks about how he stopped breathing, and I went out and out and out in the rushing wind, and out and out. And then I breathed and I was back. Right. Oh, and while he's out, he says, and I died and I knew it was a mistake to think you just died. Mm. Right. So right there, Hemingway saw, oh, for that moment, he got the glimpse. But then he comes back into the body. And for the rest of the book, there's no reference to that ever again. And there's no evidence that his perspective was shifted by seeing what, I mean, talk about burying the lead. Uh, guess what? This life of, you know, walking around, we're not just hunks of meat that walk around trying to avoid pain and have a little pleasure and then we die and it's game over. 
It's a mistake to think you just died. Those are your own words, Ernest. And and clearly for the rest of the book, his character forgets that and seems pretty clearly for the rest of Hemingway's life, he forgets that. So so that's a, a I mean, that's fascinating to me. How How does that happen? If people are listening to this now who haven't read some of these uh, authors and read some of these uh, writings, and thinking, gosh, I'd really like to sample some of this and get a, get a taste of what's going on. Of course, many people listening will have read and appreciated them, but some perhaps not. Well, I'm, I can only recommend The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature that you published uh, rather recently. There it is. Yep. Because in there, you talk about various different classic writers and classic works and so on, and you give summaries of them, and you give a biography often of the author's life. And then, yes, you, you point to some, tease out some Dharma themes, uh, sometimes to do with the writing itself, sometimes to do with the life of the writer, and sometimes some sort of interaction between those two things, just as you've been doing here, actually, with, with Hemingway. And, uh, and your chapter on Emily Dickinson is very, very nice. We talked about that last time. And uh, it actually serves, I think, as a great introduction to those works and a great reference. It sort of sets, sets, sets you up. And then from there, of course, you can just pick up the, the, the works themselves and read them for yourself. Yeah, you know, and I've had a number of comments. It's very gratifying. I've had a number of emails uh, from people telling me I had not read several of these books, and now I'm, I'm going out and, and, and reading them. Thank you. And, and uh, it's nice when people say, gee, I wish I'd had you as my English teacher. Uh, so, so yeah, never too late. Well, let's pivot just for this last little time here to teaching meditation, something yes. else you've done. You did that at the Pingree School, actually, and you've, you do mm -hmm. that now through your uh, weekly free meditation classes. And so, and yes, other... uh, yeah, let, let me just mention they're on Zoom, so yep. they're available wherever you are in the world. I teach three times a week. Um, uh, my my Friday time is is Europe friendly because it's in the morning here in California, and people go to my website. Um, you can uh, sign up to to get the link, and and uh, everyone's welcome. Yeah, and if you want a taste of what what sort of things are taught there, listen to the last episode, the second episode we did. Actually, we go into some detail there, and it's very interesting indeed. What have you learned about teaching meditation? What's the curriculum? Uh, echo my previous question. What's the mm -hmm. curriculum you're supposed to be teaching? Like, and then what are the what are the the other I suppose objectives or other messages you're attempting to communicate, perhaps in the way you teach meditation or the way you, you, you way, mm. the way you go about the curriculum itself. Mm -hmm. Well, in some ways, teaching meditation is is like teaching anything else. Um, you you have to get people to pay attention. Um, usually, the best way to get people to pay attention and to be receptive um, is to make them laugh. Uh, one of one of my teachers just said key thing. We he we this was in my days uh, teaching transcendental meditation. We were going all over the country giving lectures in our little neckties and 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 haircuts and and um, um, and one of these guys who was kind of a senior teacher and a mentor to me said said whenever you're about to make a, an important point just before that make people laugh um, and uh, and that has stood me in, in very good stead because when people laugh they become relaxed uh they they their 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 brains are warmed up receptive they've gotten a, a little you know 
rush of, of endorphins, uh, and um, th they will hear and they will remember what you say next. So, so that's good. Um, and, and again, a lot of this is just what we've been talking about is clarity, having clarity of language. Um, the thing that's, that stood me in very good stead, I find, um, is that uh, I've always had a, a real instinct for clarity, for precision in language. Uh, another one of my teachers said, whatever you say to people is going to have a back door of possible misinterpretation, right? Um, but our job is to make that back door as small as possible. We can never eliminate it, uh, but we can make it as, as small as, as possible. Um, you know, I, and I've seen over the years a lot of people with teachers, and often they're, they're teachers for whom English is not their first language, right? Um, and, um, you know, because they're, they're, they're from India, they're Indian or they're Tibetan or something. And they'll, they'll give their talk, they'll give their instructions, and then, you know, the, and, and students over the course of, of the, th that day's teaching or the week-long retreat, or the month-long retreat, or your ten years or your twenty years, where of of taking uh, of learning from that teacher, people are are they're cross-examining the teacher. They're drilling, trying to you know drill deeper into what. Well, when you say to sit here and concentrate on that, and eventually they find out that oh, concentrate doesn't mean for example, concentrate doesn't in the teacher did not mean, oh, exercise maximum effort to fix your attention on that one thing and to push everything else away. No, it's more like just rest your attention there. Right. Um, and, and often the, you know, the sense is, ah, uh, you know, the, the, the teacher's wisdom is so is so deep that we have to spend all this time digging and getting the, the nuances of it. And okay, there's some of that. And some of it is just, uh, the teacher wasn't clear. You know, the and life is short. So, so uh, you know, I try to make these things as clear as possible uh, at, at the outset. Um, so, you know, you, you, you avoid a whole lot of, um, misunderstanding by not using that word concentration in the first place, for example. So yeah, uh, try to be precise, uh, try to be relaxed, try to be fun and speak in plain English. Uh, if you're going, you know, I, I'll throw in the occasional Sanskrit term or Tibetan term, um, mainly to acknowledge the traditions. Uh, to acknowledge that I'm not making this stuff up, uh, that this stuff has been road tested uh, over the centuries. Um, but um, uh, you know, when 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 you're going to use a, a a Sanskrit term or a Tibetan term or a Chinese term, uh, translate it into the plainest English possible. For example, um, you know, you'll you you'll hear a lot. Um, or in, 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 in Buddhist teaching, you know, the two aspects of meditation are described as uh, 
shamatha and vipassana. Uh, or if you're teachers Tibetan, they'll say, you know, shine and lachtong. Um, I'm hearing that, in, by the way, in, in uh, Nakchung Rinpoche's voice. <laughs> I, I learned that first from him, shine and lachtong. I can hear that in the back of his throat, lachtong. Um, and he he always talked about how he loved the Tibetan language so much better. He Sanskrit, he said too many A's. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but so you'll hear those words and you think, oh, this is exotic stuff. This is some, this, this is some. And then when you get it translated into plain English, well, first of all, then there's all this room for mischief in the translation. So um Shine, you'll very frequently see translated as concentration. Lachtong or Vipassana uh, will be translated not quite so harmfully as, as insight. Uh, insight is okay if we break, oh, sight's seeing in. So, but the, you know, eventually the best translations I either found or came up with uh, uh, are settling and seeing. Right now, when you present it that way, you see, oh, that's something very simple. That's not some exotic oriental beverage <laughs> or something. Oh, settling, and then seeing. Oh, when you settle, and the 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 water becomes less choppy, and you can see more more clearly what's going on there. Oh, what what what's what is that? So yeah, clarity, simplicity. Um, and the other thing is recognizing people's unexamined assumptions and exposing those, articulating those. For example, just in a Zoom session uh, uh, this week or last week, um, this uh, uh, one woman asked about the meaning of life. Um, and I said very cheerfully, "Oh, life doesn't have meaning," and and she the, she did not take that well. She took that as as that. Oh, this 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 is going to be, this is horrible. Life is meaningless. But you see, the unexamined assumption there was that oh, that means that life is lacking something, that life is depressing, that life is pointless, that life is not a good deal. But then I explained, well, what does the word meaning mean? Meaning means um, signifying something other than itself. Like if you have a sign that says, um, uh, 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 whatever, uh, Highway 66, that sign is not the highway that sign is point pointing outside itself don't tr don't try to drive over the sign okay so um you know if if we say the word pudding we can't eat the word that's pointing outside itself to something uh tasty which is pudding now in the case of life life can't point outside of itself because every everything is 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 within life including all those words that we use to signify things so life does not mean life is actually there's that great line in that poem by um i think it's archibald mcleish where he says you know a poem should should not mean but be 
and this is this is what life is life does not mean life life because life is not lacking because life is full it's juicy it's 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 overflowing with the the nectar of ananda because the nature of existence itself is is ananda is is the happiness that you kept looking for everywhere um um and it turns out it is everywhere but first you have to find it nowhere you have to find it within yourself you find okay the kingdom of heaven is within you and then you start to find oh and the kingdom of heaven is also spread upon the earth right you go from the gospel of luke to the, the gospel of thomas um so yeah because life is like that life uh, does not there's nowhere for life to to point outside itself and it doesn't need to this is it this is not the invitation to the party this is the party right now so things like that, finding the unexamined assumptions, finding when people say things, what, what are the loaded words there? Have to unpack the loaded words. Or when they ask this question, what's the, what's the, what question do they real, what's their real question inside the question? So that's what makes it entertaining because the teaching meditation itself is so, you know, thankfully, is so simple because, um, uh, I mean, and a lot of it has to do with what words you don't use because they're going to make that backdoor of misinterpretation too big. Uh, but the teaching of meditation itself, um, uh, at least I'm finding at this point in my life, is so simple, is so clear. Almost every, pretty much everyone gets it. You know, we're very right from the beginning. We're just pulling that rug of effort out from under them, and they go into this lovely free fall. So, so then the, where it gets to be fun and, and interesting and entertaining is in the discussions afterward, uh, because, because the truth is simple. The truth is infinitely simple. You know, the truth is, 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 um, uh, simple beyond simple. I mean, you know, if we say one word about the truth, uh, that's one word too many. Uh, but, the misinterpretation, the misunderstanding of the truth of life is endless. <laughs> you know, the truth is like the dot in the center of the circle, at the center of the mandala, and then you get the petals uh, that just, and you know, so all the paths, all the, the radii getting to the center, um, there's just, you know, it's infinitely entertaining of, okay, what do, where are you stuck here? What do we have to unpack to get you from here to here? Fascinating. I wonder if I might ask you one last question on this, mm -hmm. um, which is the role of experience in meditation teaching. That is to say, the experience of the teacher. Yes. If I was to maybe elaborate a bit on that, it's one thing to learn how to describe a meditation technique. One could use a script for that, in fact. And often, yes, yeah. often even very good meditation teachers end up with a kind of a script. They sort of boil their teaching mm -hmm. down to sort of saying it the same way each time. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But nonetheless, mm -hmm. it's, it's possible to learn to describe meditation techniques. And I think quite a bit of meditation teaching is mm -hmm. describing it. And it's not clear to me that one necessarily needs to have even ever meditated to be competent at describing a meditation technique from perhaps a script. Mm. That's one extreme, maybe. That's one extreme. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
You're talking about plain language. And of course, one of the things that lingo hides is not really knowing what it is one's talking about. Right. One might re not really know what one means by that word, but that's just yes. the word that you say at that part. One doesn't often think beyond. So, you know, I think this is a fairly obvious point that sometimes lingo can mask misunderstanding, even to the person using the lingo. It can hide from them their lack of understanding. And so, Clara, I think that's one of the great things about your tips on writing is that you really have to know what you want to say if you're going to say it plainly. Yes. You can't hide yeah. behind, behind yeah, yeah. lingo. Yeah. And, and in a sense, I mean, it's a very good point you bring up. And in a sense, it comes back to what I was saying about uh, one of the things I said about writing is you have to see it before you can write it. Right. So in this case, the question is, do you have to experience it? Do you have to experience this aspect of this particular meditative experience that can happen during meditation or this thing that can happen in your life as a meditator uh, in order to convey it effectively? Um, more than that, actually. I think that's mm -hmm. on a kind of language level, but on maybe a slightly deeper level. Do you need to know where the path goes? Or is it sufficient to simply teach where you hope it goes? Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> um, it, it, no, it's, it's, it, 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 it's a fascinating question, partly for me personally, because I started off as a teacher of transcendental meditation taught by Maharishi. And Maharishi literally had us memorize scripts. For diff when, when the person says this, you say that. When they say that here's the procedure for leading them into their first meditation um here you do this for 10 seconds and then this for 20 seconds and i mean it was that precise and and in order to be um you know passed or certified or whatever it was as a as a teacher of tm you had to show mastery of that verbatim mastery of that script um that was a very effective strategy in 1970 <laughs> when uh, Maharishi took a bunch of us who were mostly, you know, we were 20 year old, you know, hippies and acid heads that he'd taken off the street and cleaned up and, you know, given us neckties and, and haircuts. Um, and he knew that he knew how to, if you, you said certain words, you could lead a person, uh, take almost anyone off the street and lead them into transcendence. Um, and we would learn those words. And I'll tell you, the first time I went into, into a room and, and, and actually did that, and it was like a miracle. It, it was really, it really worked. Um, so that's, there's that. Now, in time, uh, I started to discover that there there were some people who never got it in terms specifically for TM. Uh, you know the the and there were and TM made such a big splash. You know the Beatles went to India with Maharishi, and there was a lot of publicity about it. And it was often usually it was described imprecisely. They would say you you would chant a mantra. Uh, or they would say, even to say you would think a mantra is misleading because the, the, the technique involves um, entertaining the mantra as a faint idea and then letting it 
in its own time, letting it settle, letting it, I would, this was not Marishi's words, these were my words um, that I came up with later, it, it, it melts in your mind the way a, a cough drop melts in your mouth. And then you're left just with awareness, you're left alone as, as awareness. Um, some, some people never got that. And some people would just bang away at the mantra um, and, and, you know, just trying to print, you know, mantra, mantra, and, and they would get a headache and some of them would persist for years before giving up and, and trying something else. Um, uh, and if you only had Maharishi's script and, and you didn't have a way to, to, to deal with that person outside the script, then it wasn't helpful. And also you kept saying the same script over and over, uh, and people kept coming back and hearing the same things. Um, it, it started to be weird. You started to <laughs> sound like a robot. Now I, I'd had some, some acting background. I had done a little bit of stage acting. And so, so I, I kind of had the sense of how to, how to say it. And also later on in the classroom, saying the thing for the thousandth time, as if you're just thinking of it. Mm. Um, and so there's that. These days, that's very much um, a lively question in the, you know, there's some movement to make um, meditation, usually they'll put it in terms of mindfulness training available in, in schools, uh, which is, of course, a much needed thing. But the, there's kind of a big controversy right now, uh, whether the you need to have people who have an actual meditation practice in their own lives coming into the classroom to do it, or you can take the teachers who are already the classroom teachers who may or may not have any interest in meditation and give them a script and say, okay, this is now part of your syllabus, you know, say these words to the kids. Um, now, there's a, I think there's no clear yes or no to it. I think some people, they're going to hear, they might hear you know, there's the great Zen story about the the the, the monk who's who's rowing across the the foggy lake, um, and hears the cawing of the crow, and that just that's the moment for him, and 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 the you know the last piece falls away, and he falls into samadhi, right? Um, you know, Zen is full of stories like that. Uh, the guy goes into the the marketplace and 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 says to the butcher, "Give me." Um, Give me your best cut. Give me the give me the best stuff. And the butcher says, "Oh, there's nothing here but the best stuff." And the monk looks around at at light at the world. Oh, there's nothing here but the best stuff. And pff, he's enlightened. So any you know, it's possible to hear a word from an un, a teacher with no meditation life. It's possible to hear the cawing of a crow for the right person at the right time. I mean, you know, we've talked about this. It's in the introduction of my book. For me, at the age of eleven, it was seeing the the cover of Mad Magazine and Alfred E. Newman's little slogan, "What me worry," and that put me into this 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 very very deep samadhi. So that's all possible. Having said that, for the best results, I think it's got to be coming from someone. The words have to be coming from a depth of experience. Um, and in particular, as you, you, you go along, 
you know, be, there's something that, you know, when you're, for example, um, you, 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 when you're with a, a, I like singing Kirtan and, and I'll, you know, I've, I've been with sometimes with, you know, some of the really wonderful Kirtan singers like Krishna Das or Jai Uttal. And, you know, they'll sing this particular bhajan that's just, oh, it's just so transporting. And so I'll, I'll surreptitiously take out my, my phone and I'll record it and I'll bring it home and I'll figure out the chords and play it on my harmonium or on my, my, my baritone uke and sing it. And I go, see, I don't know if it's having the same transporting effect when I do it. <laughs> You know, because from from Jai or from KD, it's coming from this depth of of devotion that is, you know, maybe has has a resonance that that isn't there for me. Um. So in 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 the same way, I think that to really be effective, the teacher's words need to be coming from the place where, you know, as you said, some, you say samadhi or you say some plain English word, um, it has to be resonant with the, the experience that we're trying to convey. And then when we get into the insight side of it, into unpacking people's unexamined assumptions, you know, the, the, you, you have to have lived that stuff. You have to have sat at the red light, be feeling frustrated with your death grip on the steering wheel, going, mm, mm, trying to magically will the red light to turn green, and then realize, oh, this doesn't work. And then you relax your grip on the steering wheel, you sit back and you go, ah, and there it is. There's your, there's your, there's, the, there's your first, second, and third noble truth, right? Oh, I'm suffering. Oh, I'm causing the suffering. <sighs> I can let go of that suffering. Um, and you have to have, and then, I mean, that's a simple example, but um, I mean, a deep example, I, I would say that to whatever degree I'm able to be effective as a teacher, as a, as a teacher of Dharma or of meditation, okay, there's my training, there's my background, there's my reading, um, um, there's, you know, whatever facility I have with language. Um, and, and, you know, that's maybe 60% of it. And the other 40% is having gone through my first wife's uh, illness and death. And um, the, 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 and when, 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 when one friend of ours, when a Buddhist friend of ours, for example, called into the hospital room, and told Maggie, uh, my 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 wife, that she was dying of cancer. Okay, I made some calls. We can get some monks. They, we can get send them to your hospital room there in in Summit, New Jersey, and have them chant to you from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And Maggie said, "Oh, thanks so much, but you know, that's never been my practice during my life. It wouldn't be authentic for me." And, and I said, well, what is your practice? And she said, just being without hope or fear. Okay. Okay. You know, so 
you know, anyone can tell that story and, and that'll have a certain effectiveness. But if you've lived that or lived something like that and lived it uh, as a, as a Dharma practitioner, you know, because it's those, it's, 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 it's when the shit hits the fan, it's when the person is dying, it's when you're in the car crash. It's when, you know, it, it's when the thing happens that you say, well, okay, this is outside my Dharma teaching. This, this is, this is, uh, the Buddha said, how wonderful, how wonderful everything is enlightenment just as it is. Well, that didn't cover this. <laughs> you know, everything would be fine if it wasn't for this, right? That, whatever that is, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where you find out if you're a, a, a real Dharma practitioner. And you have to go through, in order to effectively help other people go through that stuff, you have to have gone through it yourself as a Dharma practitioner, and you have to incorporate that into your, your teaching. Well, I think that's a wonderful place to finish. Yeah. I think maybe I won't add this to the recording, but I don't know, maybe it might come turn out good. But Im I often think of that, imitate, assimilate, innovate. That imitation stage. Uh, yes. Yeah, scripts are good for that. I think there are, there's a role for scripts. And in fact, it's better than having a, a novice try to reinvent the wheel. Yes. But then that needs to be assimilated. And not only through repetition of the script, and then one eventually learns why the script is the way it is, and then can change it, innovate in, in some way. But also the principles, it seems. First yes. of all, one, one takes it uh, some degree of faith, and then one has to assimilate it through by applying it to or finding it in even the exceptions. <laughs> That's what yes. you pointed to there. Even the exceptions. Oh yeah, yeah, this is great for noble truths or whatever the whatever the religious frame is. This is great, but not this situation. <laughs> Could have right. I think that's bang on, yeah. Right. No, that's that's brilliant. Oh, please leave that in. I love the way you put that. Um, and and you know, it's the same again. If we go back to um, uh, go back to music, Charlie Parker starts off sixteen hours a day practicing scales at home, driving his neighbors crazy, and then he discovers his musical guru, who is Lester Young, right. And he takes Lester Young's recording of um, Body and Soul and plays it over and over. And he learns to play that. Uh, and of course, you know, Lester Young played tenor. He's on the uh, uh, bird, Charlie Parker is on the alto. And he starts playing Body and Soul uh, three times as fast as Lester Young. And, and that becomes... And from there, he starts to innovate, you know, along with with uh, Dizzy Gillespie and and Bud Powell and a few others. They start to innovate bebop, and there is a fantastic recording, jazz at the Philharmonic. I think it was the first year they did jazz at the Philharmonic, nineteen forty something, um, and it was the first time that Charlie Parker appeared there, and they're playing and i'm pretty sure they were playing body and soul and no one know, knew what charlie parker was capable of and you know a few other people do solos he does his solo and then no one will follow him everyone knows they can't follow him and you hear the poor bass player vamping through through one whole verse and then you hear in the recording a little a ripple of applause and what has happened there is someone has gone backstage and they've pulled lester young out of the wings 
They, and because they know he's the only one in the world who can follow Charlie Parker on that. Dean Slater, thank you very much. Thank you, as always. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.